Take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97 will be our starting text. We've been doing a series, uh, at least for the last two weeks, on practical um, Christian living, the basics of Christian living. We talked about evangelism from Romans 10, 17. And last week we looked at the Lord's pattern for prayer and talked about prayer. Today we'll be discussing the topic of, of our Bible study. This book must be the consuming passion of your life. Every believer should have a desire to read and to study God's word. Satan knows that, and he'll distract you in every way that he can to not let you make the Bible a priority in your time, in your schedule, in your life. So we have to take, um, make diligent effort to systematically read, to study, to absorb God's word and let it change our lives. Bernard of Clairvaux lived in the 12th century and he said, study without meditation is dry. Meditation without study leads to error. Prayer without meditation is lukewarm and meditation without prayer is unfruitful. It's a great quote, it's packed with truth and when we boil it all down, it's saying that we need to read God's word, and as we do, we need to meditate on it, and we need to pray that God will open our eyes to the truths of it so that we can obey it. You're there at Psalm 119, verse 97. It says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day title of the message this morning, Having a Heart and Mind for God's Word. A heart, oh, how love I thy law, and a mind, it's my meditation all the day for God's Word. The topic really is too broad for us to cover in 30 minutes. I'd like to just go through some familiar passages this morning that will help us, I believe, instill a greater desire within our hearts for God's Word, for this book. Just two main points. Number one, recognize the treasure that we have in God's word, and we'll talk about five different truths about the Bible, and then respond to its life-changing power. And here we'll see seven admonitions for us to obey. So recognize the treasure that we have in God's word. Five truths about the Bible. Truth number one, it is divine in its origin. We go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, just the first phrase of that verse all scripture is given by inspiration of God to understand that it is divine in its origin. The biblical term inspiration is different than how most people think of inspiration today. We often say that a poet is inspired to write a poem, a musician inspired to compose a song, an artist inspired to create some kind of a work. When the Bible was written, men were not just moved by what they thought, as we think of human inspiration, so that somehow they just wrote down the things that they thought in their own minds and in their own hearts, their own ideas. The word for inspiration is theopneustos. It's a compound word of the, the two words, God and breathed. In order to speak, 
We need to breathe out. We need to exhale, and we do that through our vocal cords, and we form with our mouths words. This book is the record of the words that God breathed out. That's the best understanding that I can have of what inspiration means. He spoke to man. And so this book is God-breathed. It's his very word to mankind. Second truth about the Bible, it is trustworthy in its authority. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at three verses here, 19, 20, and 21, and see the trustworthiness of our, of our scriptures, the authority of the scripture. 2 Peter 1, 19, again, a familiar passage. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Notice in this, these, these three verses the certainty of the scriptures. Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And the question comes, more sure than what? And so we look at the context, back up a few verses, and we find that they were talking about a voice that they heard. Peter is writing, and Peter, James, and John were the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration, and as they were there, they heard the voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That was pretty, a pretty amazing thing for Peter to hear from heaven and the other men. If we heard that, we would say, That is a pretty sure word of prophecy. But Peter says, No, we have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than the voice from heaven. And that is the prophecy of the scriptures. The Bible, that's the certainty of the scriptures. Notice also in these three verses the continuity of the scriptures. No prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. Now that doesn't mean that you can't interpret the scriptures. But it's not to be taken out of context. You can't take one verse of scripture and pit it against another verse or passage of scripture and say that there's a controversy there and you try to disprove one truth from another truth. All the words are to be taken together, and they form one unified, coherent message. And so that a private interpretation is you don't take one verse and, and battle another verse or passage with it. The continuity of scriptures. Notice the source of the scriptures. The words of the scripture didn't come out of the will of man. It was not man just dreamed this up, and out of his own thoughts and out of his own intents, he wrote it down. But notice the source of, of scriptures, they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And here's an insight into the mechanics of inspiration. The word moved here, interestingly, is found in Acts 27, verse 17. You remember the storm that took place. It was called Eurachlodon. And the, the sailors tried to do everything to save the ship. They cast out everything overboard. They wrapped ropes around the ship to gird it and to, to make it stronger. And, and after they realized they couldn't do anything, they took the sails down and it says they were driven. They left themselves to the power of the storm. 
They gave over the control of the ship. And that's exactly the word that's used here for moved. These men were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened when men wrote the Bible. God was in control. And the end result is that we have the very words of God for man recorded in the Bible. So it's divine in its origin, it's trustworthy in its authority. Third, it's accurate in its preservation. There are two identical verses in the Gospels, Matthew 24, 35 and Mark 13, 31, that say, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. His word is preserved. Since creation, Satan has tried to attack the veracity of God's word, the truthfulness. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, he asked Eve, hath God said? He questioned the authority of God's word. One of the most powerful testimonies to the, to the Bible's preservation is that it has survived the attempts of men who try to destroy it. God's preservation is not what some people think of as continuing inspiration. There was only one inspiration as the originals were written. The original books of the Bible were written. They're written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And preservation means that we have not lost any teaching of the Bible in the resources for the translations. There are enough overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence for the words of our Bibles. The recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 assures us that we have the same Old Testament in our day that the Jews had in the first century. It's an amazing testimony. It's as if God looked down and said, I'm going to give you one more proof that you have my word. And so he directed that Bedouin shepherd to throw a rock into a cave in Qumran and hear it hit a vase and break open and find these scrolls. Incredible. In 175 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, ordered the Jews to destroy their scriptures. And they said, if you don't destroy them, you'll be put to death. Judas Maccabees led a, a rebellion against that, an insurrection. And they said, no, we refuse to destroy God's holy word. Then came the Roman emperor Diocletian, who tried to outlaw Christianity by killing its leaders and, again, burning the scriptures. And God raised up the Roman emperor Constantine, who commissioned 50 new handwritten copies of the Bible. I like the words in Helder Lilliness's hymn. We often sing it. The Bible stands like a mountain towering, far above the works of man. Its truth by none ever was refuted, and destroy it they never can. The fourth truth about God's word. Fourth, it is valuable in its content. Psalm 19, verse 10, another familiar verse talking about the scriptures, the law of God, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The Bible is to be more desirable than gold. When James Marshall found gold at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California on January 24, 1848, 300,000 people flooded into California. It's almost as many as we've had in these recent days. <laughs> from all over the United States, Latin America, Australia, and Asia. They were called 49ers because they arrived in 1849. They left behind families. They left behind their homes, their possessions, 
because they had hopes of finding gold. And here we read the Bible is more to be desired than fine gold. Yea, than much fine gold, it says. How far would you travel to hear it? How much of an effort do you make to read it, to study it? How precious is it to you? I hear people say, well, I'd like to read it, but I just can't understand it. It's too hard to understand. Hey, if your rich uncle left you with billions of dollars, and in, the only way to get that was in, a, was in a, a treasure map, and all the instructions to follow that map were in some other language, some ancient language, would you just say, oh, I can't get I don't understand this. No. You'd go find the experts. You'd find out what does it say. Bible is more to be desired than fine gold, and then much. That's the amount. Fine is the quality. What an incomprehensible treasure we have in our hands today. And it's more satisfying than honey. George Mueller, who built orphanages, lived by faith, prayed in hundreds, thousands, in our comparison, millions of dollars to, to provide food and shelter for orphans, without ever asking anyone for it except God in prayer. He said, the first three years after his conversion, I have neglected the word of God. Since I began to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. I have read the Bible through 100 times and always with increasing delight. Jonathan Goforth, missionary to China, said, My deepest regret in reaching threescore and ten years is that I have not devoted more time to the study of the Bible. Still, in less than 19 years, I have gone through the New Testament in Chinese 55 times. More satisfying than honey. More desirable than gold. It's valuable in its content. Fifth, it's powerful in its ability. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. And look at one verse there, verse 12, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Here we have three descriptions of what the Bible is. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharp. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Again, what it is, three descriptions. It's quick. The Greek word is zao. It means to be alive, to be living. It's uh, translated, uh, in 127 verses of the Bible, it's translated alive, and four times it's translated quick. So the Bible is a living book. The Bible is powerful. Energes, it's active, it's operative. This word is used two other times in the Bible. In both places, it's translated with the word effectual. The Bible is effectual. It will do something. It will affect us. It accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. Isaiah 55, 11 said, It won't return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. It has the power to change your life. Our Kent Hughes writes, It regards neither age nor education. Isn't that amazing? A child can come and read the Bible and gather something from God from it. An adult can. As, old, as long as you've walked with the Lord, there's something there. It regards neither age nor education. It can change you if you are 12 or 102. This is why I take seriously every child who sits under God's word. 
If you will listen to God's word, it will change your life. And it does. Whoever you are, it's powerful. It's sharp. The word sharp here means to cut with a single blow. The Bible is compared to a two-edged sword, one that cuts in both directions. It's piercing. If you take any knife or sword made from the, the best quality of steel and hone it to razor precision and compare it to what the Word of God can do, this verse tells me the Bible is sharper than any. Dr. Henry Malan, he lived in the 17th century. He was on a ship that was going to Paris. He started a conversation with a man. We, we do that on airlines, don't we? We see the person sitting next to us. Maybe this is a person I can talk to about the Lord. Sometimes we wait till the plane is landing. You know, just, I just want to get this in. But this man was wanting to argue with Dr. Malin about Christianity. And Malin answered every argument uh, with a quotation from the scriptures. He didn't give one word of his own logic or argument. He just used the scripture. Finally, the man got so mad that he said, I don't believe your Bible. What's the use in quoting it to me? Malin quoted one more verse. <laughs> he said, Jesus said, if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Years later, Dr. Malin received a letter. It was from the same man. He wrote, you took the sword of the Spirit and stabbed me through and through. You made me feel I was not fighting you, but God. Do you find yourself saying, I can't persuade my relatives or that co-worker to accept Christ? I can't. I, they're, they're so callous to the gospel. Trust the penetrating power of the sword of the Spirit. You have the Bible. Just give them a verse at a time. It's powerful in its ability. What it does there are three activities that show what the Bible does. It divides the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns thoughts, the deliberations and the intentions, the, the mental preparations of the heart. It reveals all things to every, to, to, about every person. It leaves us exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The wording here is very descriptive. It shows that a neck is bared it's exposed. It emphasizes vulnerability, helplessness of standing before the presence of God who knows everything about us. The Bible does that. It's divine in its origin. It's trustworthy in its authority. It's accurate in its preservation. It's valuable in its content. It's powerful in its ability. Now that you know all that we have in God's word, how do you respond? Let me give seven quick admonitions for us to obey. Respond to the life-changing power of God's word. Number one, believe its message of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the first step that any individual confronted with the gospel must take. Paul wrote and reminded Timothy that the scripture instructs us how to be saved. He said that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It tells us how to be saved. Paul, Peter says the, the God's word is the agent of our new birth, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible says we're all sinners. It tells us because of sin, we deserve an eternal death. It tells us that God's sinless son took our punishment 
and died in our place. It promises that if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, he'll forgive us and give us eternal life. Believe its message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Number two, respond in obedience when it shows you your sin. In James chapter 1, we have a great illustration here. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whosoever looketh into the, the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The instruction, be doers. Obey what the Bible has to say. Hearing without obeying in this passage is called self-deception. The illustration is a person, who, who, a person that hears is like the person that goes and looks in the mirror, sees that something is wrong, either with his, his appearance, his clothing, maybe some, he's got something on his face. Don't you hate it when you see parsley in someone's teeth? You, know, you, you get that. You, and the mirror shows you. And how foolish it would be to see that and to walk away and not change anything. He's saying, that's just like the person that hears God's word. He goes to church, he hears it, he hears it on the radio. He enjoys hearing it. But nothing ever changes. How foolish. Self-deceived. So, that's the illustration. The conclusion is that the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and that word looking there is an intent it's not just a casual glance, but in an intense looking, a studying. He continues in it. He doesn't forget to obey it, but is a doer of the work. This is the person who's blessed in his deed. You want the blessings of God in your, in your Christian life? It doesn't come from a casual glance at the scriptures. It's an intent searching of God's word. Number three. We've seen believe its message of salvation through Christ. Respond in obedience when it shows you your sin. Third, let it clean up your life. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. How often do you wash your hands in a day? During the last three years, I think we've washed them probably 20 times more than we used to. Hopefully you have some kind of a schedule where you wash your hands. It's just good hygiene. And then there are times when you're, you're involved in gardening or car work, and you look down and you say, boy, I don't know how I'm going to have to really scrub these. And So that's, that's whenever your hands are dirty, that's when you wash them. We go to God's word to keep our hearts clean the same way. There should be that systematic, daily washing of the word in our lives. And then also, when we notice that something is out of place, when something's wrong, we flee to God's word and we let it cleanse our hearts. Fourth, let it strengthen you daily. First Peter talks about, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that we should be mature enough to eventually eat solid meat, solid food. The Bible is milk for new Christians. It's meat for anybody who's walked a long time with the Lord. There's nourishment there for everybody. And no matter where you are in your spiritual maturity, we all need daily nourishment. A Barna research in 
that was done in 2021 reveals that in America, 30% of adults agree that the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. But only 11% read their Bible on a daily basis. No wonder there are so many anemic Christians wandering around today. God's word isn't a part of their diet. Fifth, our response to God's word, let it guide your life. Depend on it for wisdom. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can we make the right decisions, the decisions that God wants us to make? He doesn't just leave us out there without any clue. He gives us his word. When you're talking to a young person, a college student, you say, you're at a time in your life where you're making important decisions. You need to know what God wants you to do as a vocation. You need to know where you should live. You need to spend time in his word. You need to know who to marry and who not to. The Bible will help you with those things. Why is it that when we, when we get past that stage of life, we say, well, I don't need God's guidance anymore. We need it just as much now as we ever have. And so for every decision you make, let's go back to walking in the light of God's word. It'll guide us. Six, let, let it equip you to do what God wants you to do. We talked about 2 Timothy 3.16. In the second half of that verse, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what the Bible will do. That word profitable means helpful. God has left it for us, to, for doctrine, to know truth, the absolute standard of right and wrong, for Reproof, which is conviction. The Bible also shows us our sin and calls us to repent. For correction, the Bible restores us to a right relationship with God. For instruction in righteousness, the Bible teaches us how to stay on the right path. That's what the Bible is able to do. The Bible equips us in the next verse, 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, Unto all good works, you'll have everything that you need to do what God tells you to do. The Bible will equip you for that. The last, let it change you to be more like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. One more admonition for us. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. And the idea there is it keeps increasing. You keep changing and making you, uh, spending time in the word of God as a mirror makes you look more and more like Christ every day, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Now, Paul's been writing about Moses who had to put a veil over his face when he came down from being with God in the mountain. The glory of God was so radiant. But that glory faded from Moses' face. The Christian's glory, on the other hand, in contrast, increases as we spend time in God's presence in the word. How radiant is your countenance, your face? Do people notice it as soon as you walk in a room? We need to be spending more time in the light of God's word so that we're changed into his image. That we look more like the Savior today than we ever have before. How is that done? By the Spirit of the Lord reading a little booklet by Warren Wiersbe. It's God isn't in a hurry. And one of the chapter addresses our devotional time when we get alone with God, opening his word and spending time in prayer. 
He makes two points. First, make your time alone with God a habit. He argues that a routine is not legalism. Uh, have you ever been accused of eat, uh, legalism because you eat three times a day? No. A routine is not legalism. Uh, we enjoy eating, some of us too much. Spending the time in God's word by one who loves God is not drudgery. It's something that's a delight. We should look forward to it. We hunger for God. So make time to spend time alone with God. Make that time a habit. And, and second, have a system. There are a lot of plans for Bible reading. We have a chronological plan here at Grace that's in your bulletin each Sunday. It's online. It's in print. You can go through it. You don't have to start and stop with everybody else. You can start anytime. But whenever you open your Bible, let God speak to you. Don't be in a hurry. Listen to what he has to say to you. Getting back to Bernard of Clairvaux's quote, let's read it. Let's meditate on it. And let's pray that as we're there that God will show us what he wants us to know and that he'll change us to look more like himself. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I pray that each of us will reevaluate the time that we're spending on a day-to-day -day basis to live and help us to see how much more profitable our lives would be if we were to spend more time with you in your word. Give us a love for it. Help us to see the, the value of it. And I pray that today will be the beginning of a new desire in our hearts to saturate our lives with the word of God. And may that change our lives. And may it affect those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.